announcement. The hemp revolution will not be televised. I repeat, the hemp revolution will not be televised. Welcome to the Hemp Revolution podcast, the global hotspot for the buzz and the cannabis. You can hear the stories of the green rush from the dreamers who are writing the rules, innovating the business, and changing history forever. Immerse yourself with the fascinating stories from the leaders in the hemp health revolution to learn how we are changing the game forever. Introducing your hosts, James Brinkerhoff and Sonia Gomez. Good morning, everybody. This is Sonia Gomez coming to you from Denver, Colorado. This is another rock star episode, didn't you know it, of the Hemp Revolution. In today's episode, we are going to be visiting the story and the long-term history of Joe Hickey in the hemp industry, which for him started in 1992 with his discovery of the 1942 Articles of Incorporation for the longtime dormant Kentucky Hemp Growers Cooperative. He renewed the charter and became its founder and executive director in 1994. The same year after meeting with Mr. Hickey, Kentucky Governor Brenton Jones established the Kentucky Hemp Task Force to research hemp's economic opportunities for rural farmers. Much, much more to come on that in today's story, including how he worked with celebrities and other well-established folks inside of the space to create a movement which is now part of the country's mission to legalize and standardize the hemp and cannabis movement. Give a nice warm welcome to our good friend, Joe. Hey, Joe, how are you? How you doing, Joe, man? Uh, <laughs> I mean, Sonia, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. My my best friends call me Gomez, so I'll take uh, it. Well, I grew up with eight boys and one girl, so mother was always going, John Timbay, Joe Mike, Tom, Bob, Merrim, Jim, whoever you are, quit it. So I've got to where I just about answered anything. Especially yeah, that, dinner. <laughs> I'm the same way. My mom, like, and there's like a click in between each one. Sonia, uh, Lethia. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love it. Joe, we were just having a little offline conversation about how excited I was to have this conversation. Kentucky has been a major, major player in the hemp space for a significant amount of time now. I feel the rest of the country is finally starting to catch up. But you have, were instrumental in sort of creating the entire movement in Kentucky. Can you share with us a little bit about your journey in bringing the hemp conversation to life and now pushing this this movement forward in your state? Well, and I want to give credit to uh, Gatewood Galbraith, who Gatewood, for years and years before I got involved, was, you know, trying to legalize uh, recreational and medicinal cannabis in the state. But when I got involved in 92, I had found the Kentucky Hemp Growers Co-op in this bound up newspapers. Back then, they would the way that they would, you know, like now we just back it up or take screenshots, but they would bind up a whole month's worth of newspapers. So they had 12 books for every year. And so I just happened to be, you know, going through this, one of the books back in from, I think it was 42. 
and saw where F.G. Clay was resigning from the Kentucky Hemp Growers Co-op to go to Washington, D.C. to run the Hemp for Victory program at the behest of Roosevelt. So that was, you know, when I saw that, because we have the Kentucky Hemp Growers Co-op, and I was thinking tobacco co-op, hemp co-op, you know, this is crazy. And so I, the more I looked into it, well, actually, I went to Frankfurt to see if I could find the original corporation papers. And you know how things, little things can change the whole history of, or the trajectory of where you end up at in life. And I went in and asked him, he said, we don't have it in our computers, you know, you know, and he kind of looked at me like I was a stoner, but you know, I didn't have long hair, but he, he was kind of confused because back then hemp and marijuana were synonymous. Yeah. And well, today, even still, we'd struggle yeah, with that. Yeah, but not as much. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, thanks. You know, so I'm leaving. And in, in the Capitol, they have the real wide hallways and I guess maybe 30 foot ceilings. And so I'm walking down the hallway away from the Secretary of State's office. And I hear something. I, you know, I just heard something. I didn't know if it was for me or what, but I turned around and stuck my head back in the door and I said did you say something he said yeah what year was that and I said 42 and he said well that wouldn't be in our computer system anyway that would be down in the archives and he said give me your name and phone number and I'll check over the weekend because it was Friday afternoon and it was one of those times if I had taken three or four more steps I would have never heard him and my life would have been completely different so Monday morning at nine o'clock I get this phone call and it's going yeah, I found it. I found all this right. You know, he just, I said, whoa, who is this? He said, it's Jerry over the Secretary of State's office. He said, I found all the corporation records for the co-op. So I went over there. He gave me the tax records. I mean, he had all these records from the original co-ops. And there was, I think, 19 people signed on the co-op uh, original records. Wow. And so I took them to a friend of mine whose dad had the largest family-owned tobacco company in the world at the time. And his dad, you know, was in the forties is when his business was really, you know, booming. Mm -hmm. And so he looked over the names and he was going, Joe said, this is the who's who in agriculture back in the uh, forties. So now I'm really interested because now the top people in agriculture are, you know, starting this co-op. So the more I looked into it, started gathering, found out my grandfather grew hemp and my friends talked to their grandparents. They grew hemp. And so then I found some old equipment in Paris, Kentucky. I found all these old records where the Navy was buying hemp from the Spears company in Paris, Kentucky. He still had some of the old equipment that we brought some of these antique tractor guys that, you know, collect and refurbish equipment came in, brought one of their tractors with those belts on them, uh-huh. and we cranked it. We cranked the equipment back up for the first time in probably 60 years or 70 years. <laughs> and so then I collected all this information, had all these pictures, had all the information that was happening in Europe. I talked with Ian Lowe in, in England, who was getting ready to grow it. I talked to Monsieur Matu, who was the minister of hemp in France 
And then they were starting to petition the Canadian government, this guy, Joe Strobel and Jeff Kime. And so I talked to them. And so now I've got all this information. And again, one of these serendipitous things, because I never just turn on the radio and listen to it around the house. And for some reason, I turned the radio on and I heard this notice. Uh, Brereton Jones was going to have open door at four. So if you wanted to talk to the governor about anything, you could just go in and sit down and talk to him. Great idea. You know, it's a shame more people don't do that. Yeah. Anyway, so I, you know, talked my wife into going over with me and we sit down with the governor and I laid all this stuff out. And at the end of the conversation, he said, Joe, he said, well, if you were governor, what would you do with all this information? And I said, well, if it was me governor, I would form a task force to look in to see if what you're, you know, what I'm telling you is true or not. And he said, well, I have no doubts that what you're telling me is true. And I said, well, it's not really that governor. It's more of the public perception. You know, if you have a task force that looks into it, then it gives more validity to, you know, to what's being said. So that started the task force. That was in 94. And that same year, because the couple years before that, you know, we had started going to Farm Bureau meetings and, you know, we're, getting publicity out there for the co-op and so the phone rings one evening or one afternoon and it was Woody Harrelson and so Woody called up and he said I've heard about what you're doing I'd like to come in and meet you and see how I can help so that was on a Tuesday evening and so he came in on Thursday and then he called his wife that evening and had Laura and Denny at the time, who's 24 now or 25 now. She was a year old then. Aww. And so they came in and stayed a few more days. And then, you know, we started working together and, you know, for the next two years we were doing, we went to get to the national farm bureau meeting and got the support of the national farm bureau by legend, you know, by, we went in and just tried to educate as many people as we could. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, we got their support and we were getting all this PR. And then I came up with the idea because of planting seeds in Kentucky, because they had passed a law that in federal law, they have an exception for hemp. You know, they mm-hmm. say marijuana is this except for the stalks and the seeds and all this. Yeah. So Kentucky had gotten, perturbed, I guess, with Gatewood and his perennial, you know, run for governor and trying to, to shake up the system. So they, they took out that part of the law. So it made hemp illegal completely. So there was no exception. So Woody and I came up with the, uh, the idea of, you know, let's plant four hemp seeds because five was a federal crime. (laughs) Not federal, but it was the misdemeanor with four and it was, felony if you were if you planted five seeds <laughs> so uh, you guys planted four so got woody planted four seeds got locked up and then that started a four-year journey through the court system and so we had hearings you know i think we had four or five hearings in the the thing and we we had a, an agreement with the prosecutor that if anything happened or, you know, if we won that they were going to take it, appeal it to the next court. And if we won, we would appeal it. So we were going to appeal it 
to, to try to change the law. Mm-hmm. So we went through the court system for four years, and finally the Supreme Court reprimanded it back to the district court for a hearing, you know, for a trial. So at the trial, I got former Governor Louie Nunn to represent Woody at the trial and do the closing arguments. And uh, it was so funny, Sonia, when he, because you can't, you know what jury notification is? I do only because I have those kinds of conversations, but for our listeners, explain. Jury notification is when you tell the jury this law is wrong and you're the last bastion to say the law is wrong. And, you know, they've stopped that. You can't do that anymore. The courts won't let you say that, you know, you can't put the law on trial. Yeah. He was the governor, you know, former governor of Kentucky. And, you know, he just was doing it. You know, he was going, you know, you guys are the last, you know, if the law is wrong, you guys are the ones here that, you know, can make it right. And so he was doing that and the judge wasn't stopping him. And I'd given him a hemp bar that I had. And I said, if you can think of some way to use this, you know, you have it. And sure enough, you know, he's at one point, he just pulled that hemp bar out and says, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, he said, I've got a hemp bar here. And he says, with permission of the court, and he starts opening it. Didn't ask for permission. He's assuming permission of the court. You know, he didn't look at the judge and say, can I, you know. (laughs) So he opens it up and takes a bite of it. And he says, well, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, you know, and he's chewing it up, you know, looking at the jury back and forth. And he says, and took a big swallow of it. And then he stares at him looking back and forth. He says, well, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, he said, I've got it on me and I've got it in me. He said, so if you're going to convict this man right here, then you're going to have to convict me too. And you can see they had that reaction. They're just like, whoa. And the last thing he did when he, he was closing his argument, because the prosecutor had already gone first, said that, you know, Woody was only doing this to legalize marijuana. So the governor is walking kind of in front of the prosecutor's table, and he's going, you know, my esteemed colleague, the U.S. prosecutor here, says that the only reason that my client is here, or, you know, he said Mr. Harrelson is here, is because he's trying to legalize marijuana. And, you know, the prosecutor's looking down and writing, like he's writing notes and stuff. And he said, if I thought that for one minute, he took his hand and just slammed it down on the table. And he said, I'd be sitting at this table right here. The prosecutor kind of jumped, you know, it startled him. And you can see all the, you know, the jurors were like, whoa. And that's how he closed. That was his closing argument or statement. And so the jury goes out and they come back in at exact. I looked at my watch. It was 420. Um, (laughs) they come out and I'm looking at them come out and they're all looking you know because I'm sitting next to Woody they're all kind of looking this way and I leaned over and I told Woody I was going that is it's not guilty and he went well how could you know it's not guilty he said how could you possibly know that I was going because they're looking at you they said they wouldn't be looking at you if they voted to, to find you guilty so they found him not guilty. And so that was in 2000. And then so in 2000, because we had had, we tried to get a bill passed probably, I think, 
for the last two years before that. And so in 2001, we went back again. And what we were doing, Sonia, we were having this bill was going to be a research bill for university, university research, because we knew that there was no way that you can't vote. Well, I say you can't, we're in Kentucky, you don't know what they're going to do, but as an aside, what was what I thought was funny is Mark Twain said, when I die, I want to be in Kentucky because everything happens 20 years later there. <laughs> so, but anyway, so we go to Frankfurt and now we're lobbying them again. And, you know, Woody's, we've got all this publicity. Woody had paid for a survey by the University of Kentucky that showed that 78% of Kentuckians were somewhat or strongly in favor of allowing farmers to grow industrial hemp. So we were using that. And finally, it looked like we were going to get enough votes. So we met with David Williams, who was the head of the Senate. And we told him, you know, we think that, you know, we might be able to get enough votes for this to pass. And he said, well, if you do, I'll let it hit the floor. So we finally got our list together and we had enough votes for the majority to pass. And he wasn't, he wasn't letting it hit the floor. It was like, you know, he just day after day and nothing was happening. So I went and met with governor Nunn. It's only like 20 minutes from Frankfurt. And so I sat down with the governor and I told him, I said, you know, David Williams said that he would let this hit the floor and go come up for a vote if we had the, you know, if we had the votes. And so he's not doing it. And the governor's going. So you snitched on him. Or, uh, <laughs> he, he was lying to us, you know, saying that he would do that. And so the governor said, are you sure you have the votes? And I went, sure. And I said, we, we got the votes. He said, hop in the car. And so we go out, jump in the car, and I'm telling you, Sonia, if you ever, you know, he's passed away now, but I mean, if you ever were riding with him, he drives like 90 mile an hour everywhere he goes. <laughs> and the cops pull him over. I've been in there when he got pulled over for, and they just look in there and they see the governor going, Governor, come on, slow this thing down. But <laughs> So we get over to David's office, walk in, and he just walks right past the secretary and, you know, reaching for the door. And the secretary says, Governor, the senator has somebody in there with him. And he's going, that's fine. You know, he's kind of like, you know, he said, Joe, just wait here for me. And so he goes in and five minutes later, this guy walks out. And then another five, 10 minutes later, he walks out and looks at me and said, let's go. And so we're walking down the hall. He said, it's going to be heard on the floor. So the next day it was called up and voted on and it passed because it already passed through the house. We already had support in the house and it passed. And the one thing that really made a difference is when we drafted the bill, after we drafted and I looked at it and everything, I had the forethought to add one sentence to it. It says, Kentucky hereby adopts any and all federal rules and regulations pertaining to industrial hemp. One sentence, it was innocuous. It, you know, only thing it said is the federal government basically legalized it, then we adopt the rules and regulations. So fast forward to 2014 when the Farm Bill passed, 
we didn't have to do anything because we already had a research bill set in place. All we had to do is have the KDA do the, the basic ground rules for it. So we were the first ones to get hemp seeds in the ground. And we ended up suing the, the DEA because they were stopping our seeds from coming in. And what we end up doing is, and that, I think that was the second year. The first year, we got the seeds that, that we planted was seed that we had named Denny. It was after Woody's daughter because we had a company in, in Canada that we had started in 98 and we shut down in 2002. We were growing hemp harvesting the seed, decorticating, we had a decorticating factory set up and we were making fiber, bales of fiber, and then we were taking those bales of fibers and turning them into this matting that we're making big, big rolls of matting that we were selling to Indiana Biocomposite. Mm-hmm. And every time we went across the border because it said cannabis on it or hemp, they would stop it at the border, and sometimes they would unload it, sometimes they wouldn't. But Indiana Biocomposite was an on-time manufacturer, so it had to be there, you know, on time, or you shut all these other lines down. So after we, you know, got stopped a few times and missed our schedule, they just said, look, we can't operate like this, you know, if you guys are going to continue to you know, get stopped by the government, there's nothing we can do. So they stopped us from sending hemp seeds. We had a a contract to sell hemp seeds to the bird seed companies. They stopped us because it was live seed. It was just one thing after another. So they basically just ran us out of business. But the good thing is we had that seed that we had developed up there. So we brought the seeds and I won't say we smuggled them in, but, you know, we just shipped them in FedEx. <laughs> yeah. And so that was the first seed that we planted. And so that first year, I think we had like four or five acres uh, that year. And then the next year is when we were going to plant this other seed that was imported, but they were stopping the seed from coming in. So we filed a a lawsuit against the DEA and it basically came down to they wanted to negotiate because we were saying that the farm bill basically it says notwithstanding. So it meant no other law could override this, you know, this legislation. And so our argument with the federal judge was they don't have standing because, you know, of the notwithstanding in the farm bill. And, so the judge kind of looked at the, the U.S. prosecutors and said, he looked at them, he said, you guys better go back in the other room, sit down and make a settlement. So he was basically saying, look, you know, he wasn't saying I'm going to rule against you, but that's basically he was saying, I think you better go make a." So his, what they did was the head of the KDA, because everything had to go through the Kentucky Department of Agriculture because, and we were also suing because they were saying that the Kentucky Department of Agriculture had to be the one growing it. And the KDA and us were saying, you know, we'll be agents of the KDA and grow it. And so they were going, no, KDA has to grow it. So that was another one of the things that we were, you know, having the lawsuit over. 
So it came down to the agreement, okay, we'll let you grow. We'll let you have these farmers to be agents of the KDA, but we want you to file out, file a import permit. And basically they just want to still have control of the importation of it. Mm -hmm. and those mm -hmm. stimulation control. So I didn't like the deal, but if we hadn't got the seeds, cause it was already late because they were holding it, but they finally, you know, capitulated, gave us the seed and we agreed to, you know, do the permit for growing, which was fine now as we look back at it because we don't import any seed anyway. You know, we grow our own seed and uh, produce our own seed stock. So we don't really even fool with the DEA anymore. So that was kind of, you know, after that we started Tallow, Tallow Holdings and this is like the sixth year, I think. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah, this will be our sixth year of growing and harvesting this year. And how many acres do you have live? I think it's about 2,000. Wow. Right now. So, and then about a month ago or so, well, it's been longer than that, but, you know, I've been wanting to start my own company and, you know, kind of do my own thing because I've always considered myself unemployable. <laughs> and I've always run my own companies and everything. So I started a new company that we just started really, we had our first get together at the Southern Hemp Expo in uh, Franklin, Kentucky, south of Nashville this last weekend. Mm -hmm. We kind of had a launch party for our, our company. It's called Halcyon Holdings, LLC. And basically, I'm just going to continue educating, you know, the general public on the benefits of hemp. And the thing that I'm trying to get over to people is that, you know, CBD is basically a flash in the pan. Yes. When I started this, you know, I did it because I wanted, you know, we were losing the tobacco farmer. Mm-hmm. Back in 92, when I found this, that was around the same time that all these heads of the tobacco companies were going, I swear nicotine's not addictive. You know, they had those executives all sitting up there swearing that nicotine wasn't addictive. And the government was looking to cut the support program. And I mean, there was all these things going on and I saw the writing on the wall and that was the reason Mm -hmm. That was the reason, you know, when I went to meet with the governor, they said, what do you want to meet with him about? And I sure in hell wasn't going to say him. So I said, you know, we're, I want to talk to him about the farmers losing the income from the tobacco. And so that was always my intent was helping, you know, revitalize the rural economies because there's a, it's called a multiplier effect in the rural economy is where if farmers get, if farmer makes $10,000 on his tobacco or, you know, whatever the farmer makes, he takes that money and he buys a new tractor or he'll buy a car or he'll fix his house up or he'll buy a new computer or, you know, that money goes back in the economy. Mm -hmm. That $10,000 that he ends up spending, when it flows through the economy, it turns into about $40,000. Right. And so this multiplier effect has basically been sucked out of our whole economy by these big corporations that have moved all of their production and everything overseas. So now you don't have, you know, these local companies that are 
employing local people that are putting money back into the economy, we've basically sucked out and taken away that multiplier effect because now we don't have the jobs. You know, the sewing factories are, are all gone. You know, the shoe factories are all gone. You know, the and a lot of the, the farmers, when I was growing up, everybody was a farmer. You know, in the town I grew up in, the ones that weren't working in, in the, the, the clothing factories. But all that's gone now. And, you know, you've got the big farmers out there that are growing. You know, a lot of the farmers, we've got one farmer in our county that's doing like five or 6,000 acres. Wow. You've lost that small farmer feel and that ability to, well, here's something that I always think, and we don't really think about it, is, and it all goes into global warming and everything. What we've done is we've taken, you know, it's taken hundreds of millions of years to get all that carbon out of our atmosphere and to get this perfect utopia climate that we have today. Right. Okay. And basically what happened is all those plants and animals sucked up all that carbon and they end up, you know, getting buried under the ground over those millions and millions of years that gave us the perfect climate. And now in the blink of an eye in historic terms, we're sucking all of that carbon back out of, of the ground and throwing it back in the atmosphere. And it's crazy. And where, where this fits in at is back in the, I think it was the twenties and thirties, mm -hmm. uh, Henry Ford, George Washington Carver. I'm trying to think of the guy that was in charge or that kind of got the movement going, but it was called the Kimmerji movement. Mm -hmm. And the Kimmerji movement was, you know, all these guys that got together, you know, Henry Ford made the plastic car, mm -hmm. you know, soybean guys were, were starting to, to do different stuff with soybeans. And what they wanted to do is the industrial revolution was happening around then. Mm -hmm. What they wanted to do was they wanted to fuel the industrial revolution with carbohydrates, which carbohydrates and hydrocarbons, which is gas and oil, they're mirror images of, of each other. So, you know, hydrocarbons are just carbohydrates that under heat and pressure had turned into hydrocarbons. So anything that you can make with a hydrocarbon, you can make with a carbohydrate. So what these guys wanted to do, they wanted to fuel the rural economic use the rural economic farmers to fuel the industrial revolution. And again, that if you're buying all your stuff from the farmers, it spreads all that income out over, you know, all over the United States because mm -hmm. everybody is supplying this engine. But you had a few guys, the industrialists that could, had the money to punch a hole in the ground and had the money to build refineries and had the money to, to distribute it, basically took over the Industrial Revolution and ended up fueling it with hydrocarbons. So what I'm hoping now is that, you know, now that everybody is seeing what's happening by putting all these hydrocarbons back into the atmosphere, mm -hmm. we're finally going to stop that, and we're going to start revitalizing these rural economies and creating our trying to get back with, you know, who knows how far, to, you know, are we too far down the road, this rabbit hole with how much we put into the atmosphere, how much carbon we put out there so far, but we've got to stop and do something different. And 
hopefully hemp is one of the main drivers that's going to help us change this whole formula of where we're at and where we're going. That is one of the most incredible stories I have heard to date. I just imagine like the setting in the court being like a version of my cousin Vinny. <laughs> this you guys just twiddling your thumbs on the sidelines hoping that the answer is going to come through how involved is woody still with your projects well woody probably spent upwards of probably somewhere between four and six million dollars of his own money wow. that he's put into environmental issues you know mm-hmm. trying to and not only stopping the destruction of like the old growth forests or redwoods and everything. Yeah. But put money into alternatives. You know, we, mm-hmm. we had a company called Prairie Pulp and Paper that we formed. We were going to take wheat straw and turn it into paper in Canada. And so we had that project. But, you know, fighting the big paper companies because they can cut their price and cut their prices. And so after, I think we worked at that for probably 12 years or so, we finally, we just, you know, you can't, you know, you can't go up against those big companies and win. We're just, we're like a gnat on an elephant's back. Yeah. (laughs) But the good thing was, you know, we had a consultant we were working with and Mm -hmm. when we shut it down, he was going, you guys may think that you failed, he said, but you didn't because of what you guys did. Now the big paper companies, you look at them, they're all doing alternative papers. They're all doing, you know, wheat straw papers. They're all looking yeah. at different types of papers that they weren't before. He said, so, you know, you guys basically did what you wanted to do, and that was to get the attention of the big paper companies to come in and do it. But I think Woody lost a couple million dollars in Kenex because of the government shutting us down. And so, I mean, Woody's still out there supporting, but he, I think Woody feels like that, you know, he's really gone above and beyond what the average person out there has. Oh done. yeah. But he's still, no, Woody's still out there you know, trying to, spread the word he still wears hemp every chance he gets <laughs> he's just a great guy i mean anybody that would put their career on the line yeah get locked up and to do that you got to be pretty dedicated to what you're uh, what you're trying to do so in kentucky now two thousand acres just in your farm alone how many acres in kentucky total do you know are producing hemp? probably around you know, somewhere between forty and 50,000 acres in Kentucky. Wow. And is it primarily produced for the CBD content or is it a lot of, yes? Well, yeah. see, that's why, you know, to me, the CBD thing is more of a, I'll say a flash in the pan. But Yeah, I'm, I agree. I'm uh, hoping it's kind of an economic driver. People that make money on the CBD, I'm hoping are going to put that money back into building seed crushers, uh, decorticating facilities, you know, so we can start having the, this raw material to start the industry of uh, a paper industry, uh, uh, oil industry, mm-hmm. uh, uh, concrete industry, plastics, you know, all this stuff. 
And the good thing about hemp is it lends itself to, to building the rural uh, economies because you can't ship hemp long ways economically. So it has to be processed pretty much locally. Mm-hmm. And so again, you know, my vision is these small factories making plastics around, you know, starting building houses out of, with concrete, the hemp concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, concrete. I, I wrote this story, and this is, I guess, 97 or 98, but it was about the hemp house of the future where, you know, you get out of your bed that has the hemp sheets and hemp blankets on it, step onto a carpet, this hemp carpet, and you get in, in uh, you go in the bathroom and you wash with hemp soap with a hemp washcloth and you dry off with a hemp towel and put hemp oil on. You go downstairs and have hemp cereals for breakfast with hemp milk. You get outside and your plastic car made from hemp fueled by hemp fuel and you go to a factory working, you know, in a hemp factory. And I hope someday that that becomes true. I mean, that's the vision and that's what I've been working for 27 years now. Wow. I'm going to just say thank you for your service. You have quite literally paved the way for many of us, especially in my generation. I was, you know, I was a part of the voluntary committee with the Department of Revenue here in Colorado when they were legalizing cannabis. And I owned and operated one of the first licensed dispensaries here. And I'm originally from California where Proposition 215 opened up for medical use in 96 and I was still so young. I'm, I'm 34 now. So a lot of the oh, foundation, yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm young right now. And I, I know the, how important the work that you did was for the rest of the country because it gave us it gave us a method. It gave us a way to be able to communicate and talk about the importance and possibilities by giving safe access to this plant. And I think a lot of people are focused right now on the health conversation, but the ripple effect of, of the allowance through health care or, you know, through our own personal self-care not only is a disruption to the healthcare industry, but the other big, big businesses, I always call it the battle of David and Goliath. We're getting ready to come up against a pretty significant fight right now between big business and big industry paired with the mom and pop shops who are pioneering this movement. And so thanks for your service because that has literally made it possible for us to be able to have the conversations, open it and educate our communities, our families, the households that we're a part of, and making this a comfortable subject matter to be able to discuss. Whereas I imagine that in the 90s, when you were pushing this forward, it was not such a comfortable topic of conversation. No, we couldn't even get to, you know, if we went into a senator's office or a state representative's office, they would say, look, we can't even be seen with you guys. So wow. you know, now it's it's just the opposite. Oh, you know, now Mitch McConnell, who before wouldn't even meet with us, is now his legacy will be, you know, that he, you know, was the one that brought hemp back into the state of Kentucky. 
the one thing that I think people don't understand, like you were saying, how many acres are growing in Kentucky right now? Mm-hmm. The thing that people don't understand is because they're growing in Kentucky, Colorado, Oregon, mm-hmm. Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, I mean, Michigan, they're growing it everywhere. But what people don't understand, we're growing enough, enough hemp in Kentucky to supply 320 million people, every man, woman, and child in the state of Kentucky. We're growing enough hemp to supply 25 milligrams a day to everybody. That's just in Kentucky. So what I'm afraid of is all these farmers that have been told, you know, oh, you can make $10,000, $20,000 an acre off hemp that started to grow this year without a contract, which a lot of them did. The processors that have the equipment to turn the floor material into an oil, they've already got contracts. They already have contracts with their farmers. You know, our company, Atalo, has contracts. So, you know, Atalo won't be buying oil from our floor material from anybody else. So all these farmers that don't have contracts are going to end up losing. And what's going to happen is the same thing that happened in Canada in 97. In 97, they allowed the farmers, it was the first year they allowed them to grow hemp and they made great money. And all these other farmers saw that, you know, Oh, they, they made great money. Let's go and plant, you know, jumped on the bandwagon. Dumped on the bandwagon, 98, they had a bumper crop, and for three years you had grain bins full of hemp seed, and it crashed the market. And it took a while for the market to recuperate, and this is exactly what's going to happen with us right now. These farmers out there are going to be sitting on this, and the price is going to keep dropping because, you know, if I'm a farmer and I've got, you know, 50,000 pounds or 10,000 pounds of, of hemp, if I have to sell it at a 10% or 20% loss just to get some of my money back, I'm going to do it. And that's what's going to happen. You're going to have these farmers that are desperate and they're just going to dump it for whatever they can make off of it. The market's going to crash and you're going to end up with all this material on the market. And it's going to take probably, I'm, it'll probably settle down after two or three years. You know, there's going to be just so much there. So anybody that's listening, you know, be careful. If you're going to grow next year, don't grow without a contract. This is such good advice. And I was going to ask you this because I usually ask my guests this, these questions, who should they have contracts with before they begin their farming? Okay. That's a, Really good question with a real or hard to come up with answer because if you're going to contract with a company, you need to know that they're financially able to do it. You need to have ironclad contract that has repercussions if they don't follow through with their purchase contract. Financial repercussions. Yeah. I mean, there has to be, you know, if you don't buy it at a certain time or something, then it's just like, if you don't pay a loan back, you know, then you have to pay penalties. You ha- you know, I mean, there has to be something in there that protects the farmers. Mm-hmm. Gives them a real way of dealing with it instead of just like, well, I don't have the money. I can't pay you. So 
you know, look what happened in the market, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so if I was a farmer, I wouldn't grow for anybody that I didn't know that I didn't feel like that they could do it. And I've had some farmers call and say, you know, we want already this year called me up and said, you know, we want to sell our crop, but we don't know who to sell to. And they said, we're thinking about going with this one company that says they'll process for us, but they'll do 50, 50 split the oil that's produced. And I went, why would you do that? Because now you're just, you're gone from floral material to an oil. And what are you going to do with the oil? You don't have a market for it. And the market's going to be so flooded. You're just going to be sitting there with oil on your hands. So and 50, 50 split is outrageous. You know, they, they were doing started off at 20, 80, and then it went to 25, 75, and then went to 30, 70. And it just keeps because they know that they can take advantage of the farmers because they're in a tight spot. So I just, I don't want to see people get too far out on the limb. You know, mm -hmm. these farmers need to know that, you know, if it was me, I would grow an acre or two. I would do my own, you know, I'd do a moonshine extraction, makes my own products, do a little mom and pop thing and, you know, develop something that you can control and sell on your own and don't go out here and try to grow 50 or a hundred acres. Yeah. Just do something you can control yourself. Do something you can make your own, make your own own, make your own business, you know, be vertically integrated. And, you know, farmers don't need to make a lot of money to survive. You know, if you can make fifty, sixty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year, you know, you can live on a farm. But you sure can't do it if you're going to lose that kind of money a year. Yeah, absolutely. This is, you know, I love that we're having this conversation right now. And I, as a matter of fact, would like to invite you to do a part two, because I think that the direction and advice around how to build your company in a sustainable way so that you can stand the test of time. Right now, everybody is so concerned about how they're going to get into the industry, but no one's really leveraging the foresight to be able to figure out how they're going to stay relevant in the industry. Yeah, there's um, so much money that's being poured into this industry right now. It is crazy. Yeah, it's an incredible amount of money and the challenge. So because of our network, and I'm not sure how much you know about me, my husband and I have been in this space for 30 years combined. I started on the patient side, he on the business side. Um, we came together in 2009 when cannabis was legalized in Colorado. I've worked the soil to sale process and all of these ventures. And over the times, we've built up this pretty vast network that cover banking and merchant processing, you know, standardizing and stabilizing the supply chain, compliance, distribution, marketing and advertising, just some of the key challenges that are unique to our industry. And I uh, cannot tell you how many folks who are new to this business come in with these huge visions of making it, of striking it rich, but there's very little planning. They're spending you know, 20% of their time on the planning and 80% on the execution, which means time and money are being wasted. They're continuously hitting, you know, these incredible hurdles, which could potentially bankrupt, you know, just their energetic bank, let alone their financial resources. And that's why we created a membership community called the Emerald Circle, because we wanted to pull in our network to be able to help farmers get the contracts to, you know, the brands or help them create the 
vertically integrated model where they would understand the source all the way to sale and then right. really having a hyper focus on the efficacy of the product because right now the flash in the pan that is pushing the movement forward and really you know, driving the conversation of this industry is CBD, is the healthcare yes. conversation, yes. is the opioid crisis. And with that, there is a massive movement and opportunity opening up for the other uses, which is for me kind of sad. I come from California where everybody was really in Northern California, everybody was hyper-focused on sustainable living, you know, communal economic responsibility, sustainable practices and farming and supporting local. And that was like a huge part of our culture there. So the conversation was never strong enough. The why never made them cry. You know, they're like, oh, paper, let's let somebody else figure that out, right? I'm <laughs> so now that we've made such big strides in the healthcare conversation or in the health conversation, now it's like, well, what else can happen? So I'm very, very excited to see what happens in the next three years. I 100% agree that CBD is a flash in the pan. I think we're going to see these peaks of the industry happen with, with the discovery and awareness of each one of these cannabinoids. So we have at least 100 years <laughs> to go before, yes. before we're exhausted that conversation. But I, I think you know, there's a lot of opportunity right now to open the conversation around how useful the, the other aspects of hemp are for, you know, the, the food industry, the yeah. paper industry, the building industry. It's just such, yeah. an, such an incredible time. It's just, this, uh, this one guy said one time, he said, it's one of the few crops that can house, feed, and clothe you and heal you. So... But I've enjoyed our conversation. I've really enjoyed it too. And I can't wait. In our follow-up conversation, I want to talk about how your, your new venture is getting ready to pave the way for these next generation conversations to happen, right. sustainable practices, how we're going to infiltrate these other industries. You know, what are some of the other pieces of guidance that we can offer farmers, extractors, you know, the industry as a whole, as we are shaping and getting our feet on the ground here, how can we build our infrastructure and foundation so that it's solid and that we can stand the tests of time? I would love to continue that conversation. Okay, but well, I look forward to it too. Okay, awesome. For those of you who are listening in today, I am so grateful for your time and attention. This is the Hemp Revolution, and what we are experiencing right now is quite literally the largest disruption in big business industries that have shaped our communities for generations. The, the multi-layer experience and opportunity that hemp is giving us right now is one of the most important movements that you could ever be a part of. So while you are sitting at your dinner tables with your families and while you are out there in your communities pioneering and pushing for the, our rights to safe and legal access, while you are a part of researching and, and looking for your way to enter into this space, ask yourself this question, what are you most passionate about and what problem do you want to solve? They say that when you serve the masses, you can eat 
compete with the classes and your mission and movement has to be bigger than the income that you want to generate. I'm Sonia, your host of The Hemp Revolution. We can't wait to see you on our next show. Check us out at theemeraldcircle.com. And Joe, where can they find more information about you and what you're up to? Well, we just started our new company, so HalcyonHoldingLLC.com, H-A-L-C-Y-O-N, Holdings with an S, LLC.com, and we'll have the website up probably within the next week or two. Perfect. So it'll be live when the interview goes live. We will be also posting the links. So check out the links around this video and inside of the article for show notes on today's episode, and we can't wait for part two. Joe, thanks so much for coming on with us. Okay. Thanks, Sonia. Take care. All right. You too. And we'll see you guys on our next episode. Thanks for listening to another rock star episode of the Hemp Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Gomez. And just for you, we took notes on this episode along with the links and other resources mentioned inside of today's show. Get them for free right now by going to theemeraldcircle.com. Now, if you want more on this, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast or wherever you like to listen, and you will be automatically entered in to our monthly giveaway where you can get swag bags, all kinds of cool gifts and discounts from our guests and exclusive offers that are only mentioned right here in the Hemp Revolution podcast. I can't wait for you to share this with your friends. With your help, we've been able to impact millions of people's lives around the world with the truth about hemp and cannabis. And we know that you love us so much that you're going to leave a review and rate us right now on your favorite platform to absorb content just like this. Now, we challenge you to dream big and love the life that you live. Thanks so much, and we hope to see you on our next episode of the Hemp Revolution podcast. Ciao for now.